Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our interactive and downloadable A to Z Guides to Body Positive Parenting. If you are determined to break the cycle of body insecurity and scrutiny for you and your family and to put body positive parenting into action, learn more and sign up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. These free virtual guides will be free for the remainder of the Full Bloom podcast season one, which wraps in just four weeks on Friday, July 12th. So you still have some time to sign up for our mailing list and gain access to these guides. Each guide has a wealth of content, including research and resources to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action, as well as practical daily tips to help you and your care providers help your children fully bloom. Again, those can be accessed by signing up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. That's fullbloomproject.com slash join us. Today we're asking the body positive parenting question, how do I learn to love my child's genetic body blueprint? As many of you know, our mission at Full Bloom is to help parents create home environments that are protective for children against developing the eating disorders and body image concerns that Zoe and I both treat in our therapy practices every week. But today we are shining a light on the fact that we are not just reckoning with social and cultural factors. While the research shows that eating disorders are influenced by culture and environment, it also consistently shows that eating disorders do run in families and that there are actually biological vulnerabilities to these illnesses that our children may inherit from us. To help us dig into the genetics of it all, we've brought in Dr. Cynthia Bulick, a clinical psychologist and one of the most distinguished experts in her field. Dr. Bulick, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here today. So let's start by hearing a little bit about who you are and how you came to study the genetics of eating disorders. Sure. Well, I'm actually sort of two different people on two different continents. Um, I am the founding director of the University of North Carolina Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders, and I've been working there since 2003. And I'm also the director of the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, where I am right now. Wonderful. And what has been your process of studying eating disorders and then getting into studying the genetics of eating disorders? How did you kind of flow into that space? Well, this goes way back. So actually, when I was an undergraduate research assistant, my mentor was asked to write a paper comparing anorexia nervosa and depression. And he didn't have time to do it. So he pawned it off on me. 
And being sort of like the good investigative journalist that I am, um, I decided I needed to learn everything I needed, I could possibly learn about anorexia nervosa. So I read everything in the library. I also shadowed the psychiatrist on the eating disorders unit in Pittsburgh. And it was one of those transformative experiences where I was just amazed at what I saw. Um, you know, at that point, it was mostly um, adolescent or young adult women who had anorexia nervosa. And at that moment, it was sort of my two worlds came together because I had also been a figure skater. And this is this is back in the 80s. And there were so many people that I realized had sort of dropped out of figure skating. Now I realized it was because they had developed eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like my sports world and my academic world came together and this path was set and I've been on it ever since. I didn't know that actually about your background and um, we recently recorded an episode about movement and some of the kind of risk risk factors in, in sports and dance. So that's a, it's a, a fun and relevant fact. Um, and on our podcast, we have um, this episode's airing sort of later in the season. But over the course of the season, we've we've referenced genetic risks and genetic factors that kind of go into vulnerabilities for for people. Um, so I think our listeners have heard this word genetics before. We've talked about ancestry and. Um, but since we have you, who we have uh, zeroed in on as one of the leading experts in this specific space, I am. We're, we're curious what you would like parents to know about the genetic risk factors associated with eating disorders. Yes, I think it's actually very important that we talk about this as much as possible because of all of the psychiatric illnesses. I think eating disorders have been, in some ways, the most and most prolongedly misunderstood. Um, so there have been decades of attributing eating disorders to sociocultural factors, to parenting factors. And, you know, there's no question that our cultural environment does play a role in triggering eating disorders. But my work, going back decades now, shows first that eating disorders do run in families, Second, the reason they run in families has to do with genetic factors. And now, with the new tools we have to do research on genetics, we're really homing in on which areas of the genome, which genes are implicated, and how they actually act. So eating disorders are genetic. The liability, um, about 50% of liability to developing illnesses are due to genetic factors, and progress is accelerating incredibly at this point in time. It's such a relief to know that you're doing this work because I think as kind of clinicians on the front lines, it's there's still so much of that, our history of, as a field that's lagging behind. And it's really nice to be able to speak with you and just educate us and, and clarify what we do with that information um, and how we understand this. And really, I guess, ask you, what are the implications for children and family members given the this information that the liability is 50% on genetics? 
You know, it's it's a really good question because I think our patients and their family members are often so educated about eating disorders. I've talked to so many clinicians who ask me, they know more about this genetic stuff right now than I do. You know, how do I talk about this with them? So I've sort of been trying to develop ways that we can take what we know on the academic side about genetics and bring it into the clinic. So one of the things that I tell people sometimes is, you know, both genes and environment play a role. And you have both genetic risk factors as well as genetic protective factors, but you also have environmental risk factors and environmental protective factors. So one of the ways I think about it is like you get dealt a, you know how you get um, dealt a hand of cards? And, you know, let's just say like, you know, the hearts are protective and the diamonds are protective. So you get dealt this hand and, you know, you're dealt the genes when you're born. There's nothing you can do about the genes that you're dealt. You get half from your dad, half from your mom, and that's not variable. Um, what is variable are the environmental side, the environmental protective factors and the environmental risk factors. We can't do anything about the genes yet. We're not close and we probably will never be close to talking about gene therapy for eating disorders. But we can look at those, you know, those clubs and those spades and say, how at risk are you um, on a genetic level for this illness? And we're probably going to get to the point where we can say, hmm, you know, this person, in addition to their family history of an eating disorder, they're at pretty high genetic risk. So we might need to be especially careful about the environmental exposures that they have. So someone who might be at high genetic risk for anorexia nervosa should probably never go on that first weight loss diet because that might be the trigger that sends them down on that slippery slope to developing an eating disorder. We have a lot of listeners who are recovered and parents, um, and they're writing to us a lot about how do I protect my child from going through what I went through. It sounds like at this point, we're not able to test our children and say, like, for example, making a comparison, the BRCA gene. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have that technology to say, okay, I have two children and what are their risk factors given my history, even though I don't even exactly know what my risk factor is at this point. But let's just, I guess at this point, we need to assume that they may be at more risk? And then what would you recommend we do about that? Like with our children, we, we think about it. We think that they're all at risk. If, if we've had an eating disorder or parents listening have, what, where would you go from there? No, super question. So one of the things that we've actually been doing is talking with genetic counselors. You know, because, you know, like you said, with breast cancer genes, with Huntington's, you know, genetic counselors have had a really strong role in talking to parents about, you know, what your children's risks are or is. And now they're really starting to come to the party and dealing with this more complex space when it's not black and white, when it's not 50%, when it really is dealing with complicated probabilities. Because remember in the beginning I was talking about not only do you have genetic risk factors, but you also have genetic protective factors. And those are even harder to quantify. So what you really want to be able to do is have a conversation with someone 
about what this actually means for you, for your family. And part of that is often sort of like developing a family tree. Um, you know, and looking at your family, who might have had an eating disorder, who might have had depression, who might have had substance abuse, just to sort of understand what the landscape of your family's risk looks like. But if you did have an eating disorder and you have children, you know, there's a delicate balance, again, between being hypervigilant and being appropriately vigilant. But I think it is important to be vigilant, knowing that there might be an increased risk in your child. Um, but again, it is making sure that you create as much of a buffering environment, environment as you can, being fully aware that a parent can never control everything that their child is exposed to. You know, and that's a message we want to make sure is absolutely clear because you can do everything right as a parent and then all of a sudden your kid has a, you know, a ballet teacher or something who makes some sort of obnoxious weight-related comment. And you know, that stuff sticks. Those negative comments stick to kids and adults like Velcro and they can really be hurtful. But then the important thing is to make sure that your child feels comfortable talking with you about those things so you can really work through them with her or him. Yeah, and so much of what you're describing is literally is the mission of the Full Bloom Project. And we talk both about the importance of buffering and also the sad limitations of what we can do as parents. Um, and also really talk a lot about advocacy and, uh, you know, especially in circumstances like that, if you know that a ballet teacher made a comment, right, being able to advocate for your child and confront what you can and also simultaneously recognize that you can't. Uh, change the world tomorrow. But as we talk about this, I'm curious, apart from this risk factor, like if you know that there were eating disorders in your family, are there any other things we need to be aware of as far as, you know, appraising risk? Is that the only one we know? Or are there other traits or other I don't know, other things that parents and I, I even uh, pr providers can be thinking about in terms of assessing genetic risk. Yes. Two of the things that I think it's important to talk about because they're things that we can see and identify. One is childhood anxiety and the other one is perfectionism. So these tend to be two traits that are potentially harbingers for later eating disorders. And just to give you a little bit of sort of where I come from in terms of what's behind the biology of risk for anorexia nervosa now. So that's the eating disorder I'm talking about. Most of us, when we miss a meal or when we get hungry or when we're in negative energy balance, which means we're expending more energy than we're taking in, right? Most of us don't like that feeling. It makes us ant antsy and hangry and irritable and we start foraging for food. What we think might be different about the underlying biology of people who are at risk for developing anorexia is they tend to be kind of anxious at baseline and they tell us that when they starve it actually calms them. So the opposite of what people who are not at risk for anorexia nervosa feel. Because the question has always been, why do they keep doing this? Why do they keep starving themselves? Why do they go back to starving themselves even after they've been perhaps recovered for quite a while? And what they tell us is that it just 
feels better. They feel better in themselves when they're starving because of the anxiolytic or you know, the effect of decreasing that baseline anxiety. So if you have an anxious child, um, and you know, I heard a great thing a while back that said, you know, any but any child who on their report card the only comment is is a pleasure to have in class, um, they're probably the ones that are at risk for having an anxiety disorder or an eating disorder later in life, um, because they don't cause any trouble. They're anxious. They're perfectionistic, and of course they don't cause any trouble in class, but they might be suffering on the inside. Mm. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is if you do notice that your child is anxious or if you do notice that your child is highly perfectionistic, pay attention to that. Anxiety is horrible. It's an absolutely terrible feeling for an adult or for a child. Um, and it's something that we can intervene with. We have you know, cognitive behavioral and behavioral interventions that work and might actually mitigate a bad outcome if it goes untreated or unattended to. And when you talk about the buffering, what is your version of buffering? Because we've had other people come in on, on the podcast and, and talk about that, and there's a, most of the podcast is about buffering. But I'm wondering what you think about that, the buffering that parents can, can do in their own kind of sphere that they have access to. <laughs> um, yeah, what are your thoughts about that? That's probably a, a multi-part answer. Okay, we'll take all parts. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. One of them is, as I just said, you know, if, if you do see anxiety, if you do see perfectionism, don't hesitate to take your child to see a therapist or a psychologist. You know, it, and I think so many people are afraid that once you go, sort of like you're going to be stuck for a lifetime and you're going to be going to therapy for hundreds of years and... You know, I just have always viewed it sort of as a beads on a chain kind of a approach. You know, we're, we as therapists, we're there as a resource. And, you know, you might need us for six months. You might need us for six weeks. And then you might not need us again for another four or five years. But if you, if you need to work something out, by golly, keep that door open, you know, and come back and be open to coming back for boosters. Just like we get boosters for vaccines. You can get boosters for psychotherapy or behavioral interventions. So that's one thing. Be open to, um, to our craft, to what we offer, to our profession, um, to how we can help get through these things. That's one thing. A second thing directly related to eating disorders, um, I think you can create a buffering environment by how you talk about your body, how you talk about other people's body, and how you talk about your child's body. I don't know why this is, but we all tend to be so glib at saying bad things about our body, either about how it looks, how it doesn't work, how you hate this part or that part. And, you know, kids hear everything. Um, you know, and I'll often say if a mom is sitting there or a dad is sitting there looking in the mirror critically, there's a child watching um, and, and taking in that self-criticism. And one thing we don't do enough is actually respect our body or show gratitude to it. You know, for example, here I am in Stockholm today, and I just took this amazing, probably like three-mile walk. It's a beautiful day. There are flowers everywhere. And what I should be saying to my body, and I will say right now, is, you know, thanks to my feet for letting me do that and to my nose for letting me smell all these amazing lilacs that are blooming right now. 
you know, we're just so quick to criticize. The more we can create a, a sort of a grateful atmosphere around our bodies and what they can do, that's kind of a cool type of buffering that we can do for our kids and for ourselves. We're going to feel better about ourselves if we do that. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. And I appreciated hearing you. I, I've, you transported me to that walk with you. And it, 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 I felt, you know, I, I'm not even your child. And yet I was smiling, you know, like, I, I think that, right, we do talk a lot on the podcast about that very thing and shifting the focus to bodies function and appreciation. And even if you know, some people really, that's the best they can do, start with appreciating that they can smell a flower and that perhaps just their nose is the part of their body, not the way it looks, but the way it functions and allows them to like breathe and also intake a like a lovely smell that we, we've talked about that. So it's actually quite helpful to hear you reinforce that message and also to link it to a way to protect or buffer against disordered eating, uh, you know, development of, of eating disorders in kids in particular that have that genetic risk. Um, before we move on, are there any other buffering techniques that you want to share that you feel like our listeners need to know? Yep, especially if there is a family history of anorexia nervosa, um, I think a really critical um, and biological buffering approach is to avoid negative energy balance at all costs. Um, that state of taking in less than you expend, whether it be, you know, and, and whether it be like skipping lunch, whether it be in travel, um, especially if a child has had anorexia nervosa in the past. I always say that, you know, yes, you can recover from this illness, that you have to guard against negative energy balance for the rest of your life because there's something about that that can just click in that biology. And we don't know what that is yet. We're still trying to figure that out. But a way that you can buffer yourself from relapse is to making sure that you don't get yourself in negative energy balance anymore. So I think that's really really an important message for people to hear. Yeah, it's so important. And, and I have to say just in my clinical experience with my adolescents and adults who are in recovery or working with me and weight restoring, that is really, really hard for them to accept. Um, you know, in, in the process of, of kind of working through the illness, the fact that that is very, very true for them and they need to accept that takes some time. And I'm just, I'm, I have this this desire to ask you this question, which is, if you have anorexia in your family and you have kids, is it wise to, to be kind of proactively like vaccinating, so to speak, our kids with saying, hey, look, this is a really serious illness that we have in our family that just like diabetes, like we have to be very careful about making sure that you do not go into energy um, imbalance and energy deficiency and explain that to kids like ahead of time. Is that, is that appropriate? It just seems like why not from my perspective, but 
Uh, and also, I just think in general, there's such a there's still such a stigma around eating disorders that many many parents do who have gone through this, it's like in their past, and they don't talk mm-hmm. about this with their kids, and just hope that like they either they don't know that it's genetic, and so they still you know kind of blame themselves or other other factors. But they don't really talk about this with their kids. And I'm just I'm just wondering from your perspective what you think about that idea. Yes, I, I'm with you. Um, and I will take it even one step further. Um, but I think you're right. I think the combination of stigma and not knowing that it's genetic um, is the reason that we don't do this. And I would even start, for example, in your pediatricians and your primary care um, physician's office. So, you know, the first time you go in for an appointment, you fill out these family history checklists, right? Yes. Um, They have finally gotten to the point where depression is on those checklists, which is great because then you can talk about, yes, I have depression in my family. I need to be vigilant for, you know, low mood. Um, But they haven't gotten to the point, at least my physician hasn't gotten to the point where eating disorders, um, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Personally, I do not make a distinction between mind and body. Um, So I think that all of these things should be on there. And just like we know, if we have a family history of cardiovascular disease or diabetes, I want to know if you have a family history of depression or anxiety disorders or schizophrenia or eating disorders, because that can really help you, again, be vigilant um, and then second again, be buffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see no reason why not to. We mm-hmm. don't have, I, I can't give you a clinical trial that says, yes, it's a good idea to talk about this. But from my own perspective, I can't imagine why it would be bad to talk about it. And, you know, an analogy that I find that I use a lot when it comes to, to this is when there's a history of alcoholism in the family. And one of the things, and I think this connects to what Leslie was just speaking to, I try to really like offer compassion and sympathy for a kid that is being told, like, look, you aren't going to be able to do a juice cleanse with your friends. You're not going to be able to skip a meal. You're not going to be able to like do, you know, a crash diet before your wedding. Now, I don't want anybody doing that crap, but... Mm -hmm. But I know from, uh, you know, of course, everything you're saying and everything I've experienced both, you know, anecdotally and and through reading research that um, while really no one should be doing that stuff, there's a a percentage of people that for these genetic reasons really should not ever do this. Like you said, that first diet. And I try to think about how that might be for them to hear this, right? Kind of like, I mean, I had a friend growing up that just knew she could never have a drink. Like the history of alcoholism was so profound that she couldn't have those very normative teenage experiences. They weren't in the cards for her because they were just too dangerous. And so I think that in the same way that like, look, a lot of people skip a meal. It's not inherent, you know, it's not inherently dangerous to do that. And yet it is so dangerous, like you're saying about the energy deficits. So I, I like that idea of 
just really talking about it as though it's no different from like that history of heart disease or anything, you know, that you might have cancer histories and eating disorder histories. And Cindy, I'm hearing you say that it's not just anorexia, history of anorexia, but really any eating disorder history um, is we're talking about that, that that genetic risk exists in those other disorders as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and again, you know, we talked about these three eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, as if they're sort of discrete entities, but there's really not. There's, there's so much sort of transition and flux across the diagnostic categories. You know, about 50% of people who start out with anorexia will transition to bulimia at some point in time in their life. So, um, you know, we need to remember that they sort of, they sort of go hand in hand. Granted, there are people who only have one type of an eating disorder for their entire sort of history of illness, but other people really do fluctuate more. And that makes me want to ask about, you know, atypical anorexia, but also just in general, um, larger bodies. And um, we're talking a lot about larger bodies and health at every size on this podcast. And what we're we're getting a lot of feedback around it's really hard to see my child's body um, not fitting into the norm. Like, I don't want to stigmatize them. I know I have my own very, very strong issues with weight stigma and fat phobia, and I'm seeing my child grow, and it's bringing them up. And I'm wondering... What you'd say to families with children who are trending um, on a higher, kind of a higher growth curve than 50%, let's say. I'd love to hear your opinion on that question. All for all, all thoughts that you have on that question would, would be really appreciated. I will say that I actually think this is one of the hardest things for parents and kids to talk about. One scenario that I've heard so many times is parents that have kids who are quite different. You know, one who might be really wiry and and thin and have high energy output, and another one who might be in a larger body. And how do you feed that family? Um, You know, how how do you keep the kids from talking about the differences between them? It is a really tough situation because there is so much stigma out there. How to deal with it? Um, again, the most important thing is to stay focused on where we were in the beginning of this conversation about the function of the body, about respect for the body, about nourishing the body well, but staying aware for behaviors that might be unhealthy, like um, emotion eat, emotional eating or binge eating, or as we often say in kids, loss of control eating. That's not about the child's body weight. That's about an unhealthy behavior that can be modified. And we still should be vigilant for those things and should get help for those things so that they don't blossom into binge eating disorder later in life. But you're going to get different messages. You know, you're going to go to your pediatrician and a lot of pediatricians, they're going to sort of mark where your child is on that growth curve and they're going to say, we need to do something about this. And parents need to be armed um, with how to respond to the physicians if they give a weight loss message with a child in the room. And this still happens out there. Um, and we want to make sure that the parent is comfortable, you know, either 
finding a physician who doesn't do that or having a conversation with a child out of the room saying, this is how we're going to approach it. I really want to focus on my child's, um, you know, my child's blood pressure, my child's um, glucose, my child's um, nutrition, but I don't want to be talking about weight when we're in these, in these um, meetings. Really, really challenging to do when your pediatricians are schooled to make sure that the kid stays within those little bands on the weight chart, right? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we're dealing with, in our practices, I mean, I can speak to my own, and I know Leslie too, because we both work in the family-based treatment work with uh, with kind of refeeding needs. And sometimes, like, not I don't want to say arguments, but a lot of times I find myself challenging families to let their child get back to where they were on the growth chart, right? Where... Um, you know, if that kid was plotting, you know, completely healthy vitals at the 75th percentile for weight and the parent is saying, well, can't we just get them to like this weight? I don't want to push them all the way up there. It's like, well, why? Oh, weight stigma. You know, on that note, and just to respond to something you said, I I mean, I agree with you, right? Like that it's – and I think it's super tricky because – one of the things that we really want our listeners and parents to relax about is like at a at a birthday party, you know, like when kids are having fun, like one of the joys of, of living in childhood is sometimes overindulgence. Like that's sometimes part of of, of health, you know, of, of wellness. And I think that it's challenging, right, to sort of tell the difference between something that's completely within a reasonable expression of joy and eating with gusto, right? And 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 then something that's starting to look a little bit more like what you were calling emotional eating or something sort of traipsing into more kind of bingy behavior and how that is a sometimes I think a fine line, a hard a hard one to call. And I think even harder when it's a child in a larger body, that we may be quicker to say, oh, 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 too much, too much, right? When maybe everybody, I think it's tricky, especially when we have in our minds an idea of who's allowed physically, who's allowed to eat a lot of snacks and who isn't, and how how to, I think if anything, I'm bringing this up because I appreciate its complexity. I think it's why I'm kind of struggling to even get it out <laughs> because it's hard to sometimes know when is maybe there a little problem brewing where someone's looking to food for like, let's say, self-soothing or overly relying on food as their only means of comfort, right? And when are they just sort of like, eating, enjoying a bunch of jelly beans, you know, maybe more more than they will the next day. Um, so I, I guess I'm shining a light on it and curious if you agree. Yeah. And, and I think that little term enjoying right there sort of made the contrast for me, you know, going to a birthday party and having cake or, you know, having jelly beans at Easter, if that's your holiday and enjoying them, that's fine. But, you know, loss of control eating, you know, your kid might be more frowny, it might have that sense of I can't stop. There's a pressure to it. Um, the word enjoy isn't what necessarily comes to mind when I think about loss of control eating in children at all. Um, and I think that might be part of it is just being aware of what the mood is, what the attitude is during the eating. Um, and, you know, if you start seeing food disappearing, if you find, you know, wrappers in their drawer, if you find food hidden, you know, those are all signs that, your child might be developing some shame about their eating patterns. And that's a time 
when you really, you know, do need to have a conversation and see if you might need to, you know, bring in a professional for a consultation. And, you know, there's no harm in that. You know, again, it's like, it's so nice to have a professional just sort of cast his or her eye over what's going on, ask the right questions and give you some feedback. And even if there's nothing wrong, at least you have a baseline. And I think that's really important for parents to realize. Yeah, absolutely. It's very complicated, I think, because when I am working with this type of scenario, there's often a lot of weight stigma and and extra vigilance around sweets happening in the home. And that's, it's complicated. You know, it's, it's just really complicated because how much is this behavior actually due to some stigma around eating sweets or some restriction that's happened or restraint that's happened in the family system and now the child is becoming a young adult and they have, um, and I, I'm not meaning to blame the family at all. I just think it's complicated and we all need, you know, as, as parents and with our kids, we all, we just need to be aware and be curious. I think be curious. I think that's what we keep preaching here. Just being curious and, and non-judgmental. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm even thinking too, like we hear a lot about kids that have sensory issues and like there's that whole kind of realm of why food is avoided or food is you gravitate towards oral fixations right like that maybe is a completely different prong of all of this and I think partly why as parents we need to like check our weight stigma at at the door you know and just be really curious about what's what's really going on here is there's so much risk as parents to just be projecting our own stuff onto the situation our kids I'm so I mean we're both parents and it's like, wow, if I'm not really careful, most of it's about me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can can I go back to one thing you said that I think is really important? You were talking about the family that maybe didn't want their child to get back up to the, where they had been on the growth curve before they developed an eating disorder. And one of the things that I think is so important to, to push that is the genetic research that we're doing now is showing clearly that anorexia is not just a psychiatric disease, but it's also metabolic. You know, we're seeing genetic correlations, not just with the other psychiatric illnesses, but also with metabolic factors. And where this is leading to is how important complete renourishment is. You know, why FBT, family-based treatment, is so important to get your child up to a healthy level where their metabolism can kick in in a healthy way again. And what we've seen over and over again is if a person isn't renourished up to where their body needs to be, whatever that magic number or range might be, the risk of relapse is just so high. And I think that's really hard for parents to understand, but I think this is one of the things that this genetic research is really elucidating is that we're not dealing with just a psychiatric disorder here. We're also dealing with a metabolic disorder, and we need to focus on both sides of that in order to really help people recover and stay well over time. Yeah, and I think we, um, in clinical practice, we need to catch up to that research. I, I think in general, we, we, we work hard to do it, but the stigma of it and the challenge and the illness itself challenging against that and the families um, just wanting to be 
to be better, you know, already and to, to move into phase three and FBT terms or just to be done with it all because it's exhausting and hard a, a lot of the steps of the way. And we know as clinicians, we can't stop. You know, we just can't stop because this, this, it's so, it's so clear to us that it's very important. And it's really, really hard for families and individuals themselves to take in that information and, and understand and just go with it. It's just the, it's just complex. It's so complex. And Leslie and I, we've been friends and, and colleagues for years. And the whole, the whole point of the Full Bloom Project is to try to prevent some of this so that parents and even providers can become more aware of what all of us can do on the front end through education and through just just navigation to see if you know see what can be prevented although we know that given all the all the risk factors it's a, a lofty goal so i'm mindful of time i could seriously just talk to you for <laughs> many more hours but i am curious if leslie do you want to do the honors of asking cindy this million dollar question yeah so your uh, take on if each parent listening to this podcast today took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom and love and respect their genetics? You know, I think I'm going to go back to something that we already talked about. And I'm really going to hammer home that gratitude attitude toward your body. Um, And really being grateful for what it does, focusing on its function, and letting it know. Um, And developing that kind of a relationship that will allow you to peacefully coexist with your physical self. Wonderful. That's our show. That's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you enjoy the flowers and your idyllic (laughs) day in Sweden. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This was great. I feel compelled to remind everyone that parents do not cause eating disorders. I think it's important to clarify, especially as we talk about genetic loading, which in the case of parents who have their children biologically, that blame has no role here. None of us can control what we're made up of. And if you're listening, I'm just really proud of anyone who is sitting with these tough questions and tough realities. Totally. I hope that for parents who may have their own eating disorder history or a close family member who does, that they find this episode encouraging instead of discouraging and may even consider how to frame that conversation with their child if they haven't already about their family history, that it's not something to be ashamed of and that there's real protective power in sharing it framed from the perspective of awareness and prevention. And also, for parents who don't really know what's in their family history, maybe this episode is empowering to look back at your family tree. You know, because we're talking about genetics, I think we should also touch briefly on set point theory before we wrap up. And we probably should do an episode next season that digs a little deeper into this. But we briefly talked about this when we were talking about restoring weight in our patients with eating disorders. But this is relevant for all parents, all people listening. This idea is based in research 
the idea of set point theory, and it says that human bodies each have a natural weight range we're genetically predisposed to, like your height or your shoe size. We each have a certain build and weight range that our body naturally falls into. So even if we fluctuate within that range, maybe if you're eating more than usual on vacation, you gain a few pounds, you have a stomach bug, and you lose a few pounds, eventually, if you just eat intuitively, your body will fight to return to this natural range where it's comfortable and maintains without requiring you know, rigid fixation on diet or exercise. There are so many messages out there in the world, like BMI charts, for example, that put forth faulty and deeply unrealistic expectations. I like to use my example with my patients that I'm five feet tall, and if I looked to a BMI chart to see what's a, quote, acceptable weight for me to be, end quote, especially at the lower range of what's considered a, quote, healthy BMI, I would absolutely have to engage in dangerous eating behaviors and restriction in order to maintain that weight. And that's just because my genetic body blueprint is set higher than, let's say, someone else my same height, but maybe was like descended from a completely different lineage. Yeah, and I'm with you there too. And I think it's really so challenging for people to see this 50% BMI. I mean, it's used so widely and there's been lots of documented discussion and kind of debunking of how challenging the BMI um, use is. But I'm with you. It's I would also have to engage in deeply eating disordered behaviors to be at what seems to be expected of a five feet foot tall woman. We're mm-hmm. both five feet tall. We are. <laughs> if, you fi- didn't know. <laughs> if you didn't know. The, fi- the five foot tall club. Yeah. I think the point is it's essential for body positive parenting to think about the role of genetics, both in risk for eating disorders, but also in prevention and just the body size for our children you know, and who they are and who their body is. And part of the work is how to accept that for both your child and even yourself. Especially yourself. I mean, that's so much of this. It's really important for us to do this work ourselves so that we can model this for our children and kind of help them get further maybe than even we did. Yeah. And let's just not pretend that the messages that we get from our culture is pretty much the opposite. Right. <laughs> uh, every day, all day long, in multiple different forms. Um, you know, the message is that we have total control over our size. And if we just eat in a certain way or exercise in a certain way, you know, we'll be able to do it. Meaning, like, to look a certain way, I guess, right. to look the way that we feel is okay, people want us to look, people think is healthy insert everything there and this is just very important as a parent to understand this for yourself and then translate that to how you might be feeling about your child and the messages they may be getting about this concept yeah so if you have reactions or questions that came up during this episode we expect you might we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com or a comment on our Instagram. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. 
Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.